everyone. Thanks for tuning into the message podcast of French Church. My name is Alessandra. I'm one of the team members here, and we're so glad that you're joining us. It's been really encouraging to hear stories from people all over the country and the world who are listening in. We really hope that our messages are resonating with you. We also wanted to say thank you to those who are contributing to Friends Church. All of the things we're able to do, it's because of people who donate regularly. Even small, consistent gifts help a lot. If you haven't had the chance yet to give, I would encourage you to maybe think about doing that, especially if it's been beneficial in your own journey. To do that, it's really easy. Just go to our website, friendschurch.ca, and click on the Donate tab, or download our French Church app and click on the Give tab. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy this week's message. Good morning, everyone. It's Jeff here. Happy you're joining us. Uh, if you live in the Calgary area, you are enjoying the sun. I mean, we haven't had much this past week, but it has been beautiful to this morning. Uh, puts a smile on your face. You know what put a smile on my face this morning was um, I was flipping through uh, social media and, and a memory popped up on my phone um, on Facebook. It was a memory, a um, bunch of pictures of my brother-in-law's And my dad and I, who um, are down golfing, we're down at a little course called True North down in Scottsdale, Arizona. Every year, right about now, we would be flying down and doing about a week of all you can golf, just a bonanza every morning, getting up at 7, stopping off, grabbing a bite to eat on our way to the course. It would be crisp blue sun. It would be 25 degrees, and we would... Golf, and then we'd head out for a bite to eat. We'd come home. We'd have time sat around the pool drinking and telling stories and solving the world's issues. And we'd just do it on repeat again and again. I mean, it just, I'm looking at the pictures and I'm just thinking, wow, does that put a smile on my face? The happiness it brings to me in that moment, thinking, oh, that was such a good moment. Do you have pictures? Do you have memories of a, of a time, of a place, of an event that you were in that you just can't help? It just puts a smile on your face. It just brings this warm inside feeling of just going, oh, all is right in the world right now in my life. Do you have memory of, a, of an experience? Is there something that you've done that you just think back and go, oh, That feeling, that, 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 that exciting, happy feeling, wouldn't that be something if we could just feel that regularly? I mean, you see, my problem right now is I can't go to Phoenix. I can't go down to Scottsdale and golf. With my, this will be the first time in, a, I don't know how long I haven't been able to do that. Even golfing locally has been a challenge. I think we all are caught in this place in life right now where it's like there's just less and less opportunities to feel that, that happiness. In fact, if I'm really honest, if I need Scottsdale and I need a beautiful golf course and my family all around me to feel the joy, to feel the happiness, I'm probably in trouble. You know, two guys, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, two of the world's great thought leaders in spirituality, 
They got together a while back. And this was the source of their conversation. How do you experience joy in the midst of real life? In the midst of hardship, in the midst of even suffering. How do you experience these warm, happy moments when life just doesn't let you do those kinds of things that often make us smile? They don't use the word happy so much. They use this term called joy. They say that pulls from a way deeper reservoir that isn't based on your external circumstances because if it requires external circumstances to feel that, you're in trouble. They wrote a book called The Path to Joy. And we think it is more relevant right now in this moment than it's ever been. Because I don't know about you, but my life has been impacted by people who seem in the middle of their life, and their life is not pretty, oftentimes it's even ugly. But I've watched as they've been able to live with this, this warmth, this energy, this excitement, this joy that emanates out of them. And I've been impacted by that, and I look at that and I go, I want that too. So this book got our attention. So you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna spend four weeks Unpacking some of the stuff that the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu talked about. The learning that they've done through their extraordinary lives. How to experience joy that is not based on your external circumstance. I hope you can join us. This begins Sunday, uh, June 7th. <laughs> what month are we <laughs> Sunday, June 7th. You won't want to miss that. We're calling it the path to joy. Yeah. So anyways, join us. Hey, glad you're joining us this morning. I think you're going to enjoy this morning's message. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Friends Church. My name is Vince. Are those two, if you saw them on the screen, not the two oldest, joy-filled, happiest guys? They're like constantly cracking the jokes in this book. It's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that book. It's really impacted me in the last couple of weeks as I've been studying through it. Today I want to start by um, telling you a story that seems a long time away in some senses because it's when we could travel, but it kind of feels close. A couple, two or three years ago, I think now, I got a chance to go to Rome, Italy. What an amazing city. And if you're a biblical scholar and you get a chance to go to Rome, Italy, you're going to the Vatican. Like, it's almost mandatory. Like, you have to go to the Vatican if you're going to do this. And so I figured, you know, this was the crown jewel of this whole trip. We were there for two weeks. But for me, it was going to be going to the Vatican and having this incredible, like, experience of the divine or something. I don't know. It's going to be beautiful. I had it all planned out. We had hired a guide to take us through there. And we walked in and we went through the whole museum, like the world's best collection of random, incredibly beautiful art. And at the end of this, you walk into the Sistine Chapel. If you know anything about Vatican City, probably you know the, the Sistine Chapel. It's the one where, you know, Michelangelo painted the picture of God and Adam touching fingers like that. 
It was beautiful. And I remember walking in just, you know, I had been looking forward to this for so long. I, I was like, this is going to be this moment, and I, I'm gonna, it's going to happen to the Sistine Chapel, and, and there's going to be something profound there for me. And I walked in, and nothing. In fact, it was the low point of the trip. Now, it might be because I had such high expectations, but when you walk into the Sistine Chapel, you know the picture of God and David you think is going to be right there? Oh, no, no. It's like seven stories above you, this big. So you can kind of like barely make it out. There's about a thousand people in this room, and it's not a big room, and you're literally like squishing between people. And then there's Italian guards yelling out in Italian, Silence! Just so you know, like a quiet meditative space when someone's yelling to be silent doesn't really work. So really, I'm sitting in there going, I'm hating this. I found a little bench to sit on, you know, after a bunch of people left, and I kind of squished between these two other random people. And I sat there for a while thinking, oh, no, no, it's going to happen. I just need to give it to some time. Within five minutes, I was like, I hate it here. I'm out. And so I left, thinking like, Man, that sucked. I had this amazing picture in my mind of how that was going to go down. And it was nothing like that. So I walk out into St. Peter's Basilica, which is the most beautiful church, I think, probably in the world. It's the heart of the Catholic tradition. It's the heart of the Catholic church. The amount of beautiful imagery in there, it blows you away. The craft of it, like... Some of these statues were just, well, the Pieta, you know, the one where uh, Mary's sitting there holding Jesus' dead body draped across her. It just blows your mind. But still, there was nothing there. It was just beautiful art. And I remember we were walking around, me and Al, my partner, and, and our guide. And I saw this little chapel. It's kind of this one area of the basilica that it's just this little glassed-in area. And there's everyone, the tourists are all everywhere else, but there's no one there. And for some reason, I had this thought, I'm going to go in there. So I said, hey, Elle, you're good? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And she's kept going around. And and I walk in, and and I walk in through the door, and I remember there's this priest sitting kind of like on this bench. And he basically, I thought he was in costume because he looked like a stereotypical priest you'd see on the movies, you know, the black cussick with a little collar, and he has this, like, funny square hat, and he's not laughing at himself. He thinks this is, like, totally legit. He's got this massive beer belly, but I'm not sure how he got that. Anyways, his crucifix is kind of hanging off his belly in a funny way, and I'm thinking, you know, waiting for him to greet me or something, but no, he actually is there to just pray. So I figured, oh, that's weird. So I pulled down the kneeling bench. I'm not really Catholic, so this is all very new to me. I pulled it on the kneeling bench, and they kneel down, and they look up, and there's a crucifix above me. And for some reason, I don't know why, but um, I felt my mom in that space. Now, if you don't know, my mom passed away about six or seven years ago. She had a long fight with cancer. And I saw her a couple of months before she died. But in that little chapel in St. Peter's Basilica, my mom was there. I told her, Mom, it's okay, we're okay. 
She never got a chance to meet my partner, Ellie, so I said, hey, told her a bit about Ellie and how amazing she is. Told her how my brother and sister are doing okay, my dad, I said, mom, you don't need to worry anymore. And I swear that it was like, she was 10 feet from me and she just started crying. In my mind, the last time I saw my mom wasn't seven years ago in the hospital. The last time I saw my mom was three years ago in Rome, in a little chapel. And I don't know what you do with that story. I don't even know what I do with that story sometimes. But we seem to have these moments where things happen that are bigger. They're just, you can't explain them. (laughs) I'm in Rome and I, I feel like I'm talking to my mom in a Catholic chapel. Like, what do I do with that? What do you do with those moments that you just think something bigger happened than just that moment? And you, I've heard you guys tell me these stories. People say, I, I was diagnosed, or someone I loved was diagnosed with an illness, and it was going bad, and then all of a sudden, the doctor's going, we don't even know what happened, but you're better. People talking about sunsets, the perfect sunset at the perfect moment when they just so needed to feel like somebody cared, that there was going to be all right. And they don't know, did that sunset get made for me or, or is that just me making stuff up? I don't even know. But we have these moments, right, where something bigger than life happens. I've heard of people talk about conversations they have had with someone, and it's a normal conversation back and forth, and then all of a sudden, somebody says something to them, and they go, whoa. Like, that was bigger than just this conversation. Something profound happened. It's like the divine was in that moment for me. We walk through our lives and we have these moments of the perfect thing showing up at the perfect time in a way that it shouldn't have happened. And the question is, what do we do with these moments? And that's where stage four starts. Stage four starts when we develop the ability. It's not, stage four isn't a destination. I, I think we often think too much that it's like, okay, stage one is like kindergarten, and I have to get to stage four because that's better than stage one. It doesn't work that way. It's like in every stage, we learn a new ability. In stage four, we learn the ability to deal with things that aren't explainable, that may not be logical. In order to get there, I just want to review the stages. And I, I called a friend of mine this week, and we were talking back and forth about this message. She's a friend I grew up with. I, I don't ever remember not knowing her. I think we probably met in church, but again, I have no memory of not knowing her. She, we grew up together, and her family was so cool. Her mom was one of those mums that just lived in the moment. 
Our family, you eat at the table because that's what you do. You eat at six o'clock because that's what you do. Her family, sometimes they'd eat random things in the living room. It's like her mom just kind of felt like, hey, this would be fun. We should totally do that. She said she'd remember going to bed and all of a sudden her mom would wake her up at you know, 10 o'clock at night and be like, hey, we're going to, on a road trip to see your grandparents. She's like, cool. Her mom just kind of did these amazingly fun things because she felt like it. And that's the ability we learn in stage one. Stage one, we develop the ability to figure out what we want when we want it, how we want it. It's really beautiful because it's the most fun moments in life often come from our stage one. But I remember, I must have been extremely little because I remember one day, it was evening, we were just going to bed and all of a sudden I could tell my parents something really bad had happened. My parents were talking, their heads were really close and their, their voices were really intense. And then also my dad took off, and I was like, and my mom sat us down and said, your friend's dad was just killed in a car accident. I don't even remember, she was probably four or five, maybe six years old, had a brother, a little bit older. She's now being raised by a single mom. And she says the most profound memory she has of that is the church, the stage two church that we were all a part of. The stage two church rallied around their family. Took incredible care of them. She's like, I had aunts and uncles all over the place. In fact, their family feels closer to me than my cousins. I called her parents aunt and uncle. She called my parents aunt and uncle. And that's the beauty of stage two. Stage one is this this idea of chaotic individual because when we all do what we want, it gets a little chaotic, right? Stage two, we start to look at this formal institutional kind of way of doing things. We can transcend just this is what I want and we start to buy into a system. And the system that impacted her life was one of we take care of each other. And the entire church took care of her family. She says she still to this day misses that part of her journey. How incredible the community was. And that's what stage two does beautifully, right? It rallies a whole group of people to a cause. And one of the causes in our church was taking care of my friend and her brother and her mom. We all did. Years later, in fact, actually, in the last couple of years, I talked to her. I said, hey, how's it going? And she said, yeah, good, good. You know, we talked about a lot of different things. And she said, you know what? I love the community of the church that we grew up with. But some of the stuff we were taught when we were kids, I just can't buy it anymore. This whole God has a plan, and all you have to do is pray, and everything will go well. She's like, I don't buy it. She said, I'm slowly starting to, she didn't even say it, but what the reality is is she slowly starts to distance herself from that stage two church, that formal institution where we all figured it out. And it was beautiful. But now it wasn't able to answer some of the questions that she had. And so she started to move into stage three, that ability to ask questions. The technical term, technical term I think we often use is skeptical. 
where we embrace our doubts. And she said, I don't identify with that stage two church. It's more for me like a social justice thing or maybe like, what would Jesus do? How do I live? And she says, I feel a sense of like disappointment. I wished my kids would grow up in the same style of community that I did. But the reality is they hate church. They won't go. And so I find myself in between these worlds of I can't fully buy into the institution anymore, but I I miss the community from that institution. It's almost like she's kind of floating through the world, her spiritual life right now. She says, I don't quite know what to do with it all. I miss parts. There's parts I can't do. But that takes us to the final stage that we want to talk about, the final ability we learn. How do we deal with moments that are bigger? So first, we had the moment of, what do I want? Then we opened it up to stage two, and we had the question of, what does the institution say to us? Then stage three says, no, 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 how do I react to that? What do I need? What is it for me that's going to work? Stage four opens it up to a new ability that asks the question, what does this mean? And to explain what I mean by stage four, because this is going to be a tough one to talk about, I need to go back to my second stint in seminary. I was in Regina going to school for my degree. I remember seeing all these billboards out for this movie, and it, all it said is, you know, where's the Matrix? It's like, I don't know. Does anyone know what they... So we went to this movie called The Matrix. We had no clue what it was about. And I remember walking out with my mind literally blown And there's a scene in there where the main character, Neo, I think what they're doing is they're playing with stage four. He walks into a room and there's this little, you know, Buddha-looking kid with like these white robes and he's got a bald head and he's got a spoon. He's holding up this spoon like this, just like the tip of his finger. And then he bends it with his mind. Just as a side note, I was really hoping to find a prop where I could actually bend it with my mind, but I wasn't able to find that. So today you're just going to have to imagine me bending this with my mind. So Neo walks in, everything is normal up until this point, and he looks at this kid, and the kid's bending a spoon with his mind, and his brain's going, huh? Just like walking into a chapel in Rome and feeling my dead mother there. Huh? Huh? And Neo asks the stage three question that we all ask, what exactly is going on here? How, how are you doing that? And the little kid, I'm going to call him Spoon Boy, because <laughs> when I looked it up, that's what they called him. Spoon Boy says this about trying to bend spoon. He says, do not try to bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. Of course, Neo asks, what truth? And Spoon Boy says, there is no spoon. And Neo says, sorry, what? And Spoon Boy says, then you'll see that it's not the spoon that bends. It's only yourself. You see, today, the metaphor of the bending of the spoon is those moments that you can't explain. The moments of coincidence that feel like more than coincidence. The moments where you go, I don't know what just happened, 
don't know what just happened. That's the moment where you see a bent spoon. And the question then is, is the spoon bending? Or are you willing to bend yourself to see the world through a new lens? You see, the beauty of stage three is we ask rational questions. Is that true? Where did we get that from? Do we buy into that? That's the beauty of stage three. The problem is stage three can't deal with a spoon that bends without anything touching it. The spo- stage three can't deal with your moments where something happened in your life and you just go, I don't know what that was. And the risk is we use our stage three skill set and we just get hyper-rational. And I think that's what Neil's doing. And Spoon Boy says, no, 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 no. <laughs> you have to bend into a new way of seeing the world. A way of seeing the world that can go beyond science, that can go beyond physics and rationality and provability. If you want to go into the next stage, if you want to capture that part or that skill set, you have to be willing to bend. The problem is most of us, we don't want to. Jesus has this moment or this story about Jesus. Him and a couple of his students are on top of a mountain. Can we just, why do these amazing moments almost always happen on the top of a mountain? Has anyone been on top of a mountain and looked over all those peaks and just went, wow. It's like more of them happen there than anywhere else. I wonder if people who live in the valley have like less moments. I don't know. That's another issue. So they're on the top of a mountain, students, and as these moments happen, Jesus is standing there, and they're, they're talking, and then suddenly Jesus starts to glow. Now, we're not talking white skin like me glowing. We're talking like spontaneous bioluminescence, like he's glowing. Curious question. You're on the top of a mountain with some friends, and one of your friends starts to glow. What do you do? Cover your eyes? I don't know. What they do is they freak out. They have no clue what to do with it. Why? Because in their minds, they're using their stage three skill set. This cannot be happening. And since this is happening and it cannot be happening, my only response is freak out. Deny, push away, explain away. You know, even as I tell you the story of my mom, there's a part of me that kind of feels really... Embarrassed isn't the right word. It's almost like somehow I feel like I've spoken in a way that would lessen your opinion of me. Because in stage three, that experience doesn't make any sense. That experience happens to crazy people. And yet what we learn in this model of stages of faith is, no, 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 when we look at the world through stage three, we have to ask that or answer it that way. This can't be happening. This didn't happen. You need to push this away. Even stage two. Stage two asks, does it fit into what we all believe? uh, Anyone remember kind of there's a whole string of movies probably in the early 2000s, uh, one was Stigmata and all these movies about supernatural events that the Catholic Church is trying to like, push down and uh, explain away. That's a stage two response. 
This doesn't fit with what we think should happen. Therefore, we're going to tell you it didn't happen. So the first stage three and stage two have no ability to deal with these stage four moments. And yet, there's these times in our lives where we look and there's a spoon bending. There's a coincidence that's happening. There's, a, there's an experience that we're engaged in. Our friend is glowing. <laughs> and we have to ask ourselves the question, are we willing to bend into a new way of seeing the world? Are we willing to open ourselves up to moments that are beyond what science can explain? And instead of asking the question, in stage one we ask the question, do I want this? Stage two we ask the question, does this fit our system, what we all believe? Stage three asks the question, is this provable? Stage four asks the question, none of those things. It asks the question, what does that mean to me? What does standing on top of a mountain and looking out over all those incredibly beautiful peaks, what does it mean? Stage three asks, you know, there can't be a crater because tectonic plates and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's, that's nice. Stage three does that really well when we need it. Stage four says, if I believe that there's a purpose, that something created that, does it feel like I'm more cared for? Does it feel like this moment elevates the rest of my life into seeing order and beauty and transcendence? In the sense that there's more to my life than just grinding it out at work. You see, stage four asks completely different questions. And it demands that you bend into seeing things a new way. Even if it doesn't make sense to science. Even if it doesn't make sense to rationality, I'm telling you, the rational part of my brain thinks that when I walked in that chapel, the incense that they were burning, that stuff was laced, man. There's some serious hallucinogenics in there, and I had this whole trip thing. Or actually, my favorite explanation is, you remember that priest I told you about? Wasn't a priest. He was a hypnotist. So I walked in, and he did some sort of juju with me. I'm not sure. Maybe it was this crucifix. And then he implanted that whole thing in my brain, right? That's the stage three that says, this did not happen. Vince, you made this up. The stage four of me. You can tell I don't even want to go here. The stage four of me says, my mom no longer has to sit wherever she is, and worry about us. She can be at peace, and so could I. I couldn't give two shits if it happened, folks. But what it means to me is, I can go on with my life now. I don't have to carry the weight of my mother worrying anymore. I can't often get to stage four. Honestly, I really like stage three. <laughs> it's like my brain was created for stage three, man. It loves that stuff. I'm guessing I, I said at the beginning, all you IT people and engineers out there, you get it. <laughs> stage three is how our brains go. It's, people pay you to stage three the world. And yet, these moments of more 
have such a profound impact on us that we seek them out. The, the meditation traditions, the sweat lodge traditions, even the ayahuasca traditions where using hallucinogenics to change the state of your mind so that you can open yourself up to an experience that asks the question, what does this mean to me? These are all attempts for us to try to get into that stage four place and experience something life-changing. Peck, the guy we base this series on, seems to, my reading anyways, is he kind of villainizes the first three stages. He's like, just stay in four. The reality is though, when your friend says, hey, what do you want for supper? Stage four isn't the skill set you use, you know? There's a profound moment of something joyful in Carl's Jr. I don't know. You're like, what do I feel like eating? Stage one asks, answers that question beautifully. I don't base my exercise routine and my nutrition on a stage four way of looking at the world. I do it on a stage two way. I exercise on these days. I do this kind of exercise. I eat this kind of food. I have this many vegetables. It's all formalized in a system. Stage two does it beautifully. When I need to make profound change in my life, when I need to question the status quo and look for something new, I use stage three. Because it's almost like it's designed to do that. It's designed to ask the questions, is this true? Is this right? Should we do this? What does it work for me? I just got a test, Viome. It's a gut biome test. It basically, you check your gut biome and then they tell you what foods work with your gut biome and what don't. For some reason, I'm not supposed to eat any spinach. I used to think like, stage two, spinach was good, right? You're feeling a little bit under the weather, you eat a whole bunch of spinach. So I'd chow down spinach, I hated it, but I'd chow it down as hard as I could. The reality is my body doesn't work with spinach. Stage three says, I'm gonna question the status quo and do things a new way. But folks, if you want a life-changing, profoundly impacting experience, they tend to not come from those first three abilities. They tend to come from seeing moments of transcendence, of the divine, of something more, whatever you wanna call it. Every tradition has a different name for it. But it's an experience where something unexplainable happens. You look at something as being more than, and you'll find that it, it changes your motivation, it changes the direction in your life. It can change everything. But it doesn't work if we're stuck in stage three, saying, this spoon can't bend. It only happens if we're willing to bend ourselves out of that stage three and look at the world through a new lens that says, I don't care if this happened. What does this mean to me? I think that's why many of us are here at a spiritual gym, at a church. We do it through the Christian tradition, but there's a million traditions that do this. Because I think deep down inside, we crave this stage four experience of life. 
Some of you, you guys breathe stage four. Man, you live in this. I am so jealous of you guys. It's beautiful to watch you move through the world. It's almost like you skipped from one to four. You're just like, I'm going to bypass all those ones. The reality is, you often become leaders for us. I listened to how Gregory and Alessandra and Kyla talk about music. It's all stage four language, isn't it? In fact, this series or this message was inspired by something Gregory said. He said something along the lines of, you go outside and you smell the dirt, and science just doesn't give it a good enough explanation. The, the, the experience of smelling the ground, it's like there's something beautiful there. The music that they do, it, it tries to invoke this experience of something more. We know that rhythmically doing things changes parts of our brain state so we can experience something more. Sometimes when we talk, you can't, we can't talk in stage four. We need to experience stage four. And even this, I was trying to figure out how am I going to explain this to you guys? Because stage four isn't understood. That's stage three. Stage four is felt. So I want to encourage you to go back to those moments, whatever your Sistine or <laughs> chapel in St. Peter's Basilica, the moment where the spoon bent and you didn't even know, the moment where you sat in front of somebody and something profound happened or you experienced a moment that was just more than that moment. Go back to that moment. I want to ask you to open your heart to that moment. Invite you just to not look at it through that stage three skill set of, did it happen? Who cares? Ask the question, what did that moment mean to me? Do I feel loved? Accepted? Cared for? Not alone? Do I feel like maybe there's something bigger in my life that I can connect to? My encouragement for you today is this. Open your heart up to that moment. And if you're willing to bend and ask the question, what does this mean to me? I don't care if it happened. What does it mean to me? Chances are something profound will happen. Folks, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love, if you're open to sharing your moment of the spoon bending, I'd love to hear it. Send me an email, vince at friendchurch.ca. I would encourage you to come back. Jeff's going to talk next week. He's going to take all of what we've talked about kind of high level and bring it into our lives. So you can see these moments. You can see the beauty of them. You don't want to miss that. And folks, if you're new to Friend Church and you haven't been to one of these Welcome to Friend Church orientations, I want to ask that you come. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to hear your story. Go to friendchurch.ca slash welcome to check it out. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.